This final section of prophecy in the book of Isaiah presents the audience with the same two decisions that affect each of us on a daily basis. A decision that we make every moment, every day. Will you follow the world or will you follow God? In these final two chapters, chapter 34 and chapter 35, put together that sequence. As these two uh, chapters really hold together in this prophecy to describe why we must follow the Lord. And if we do not follow the Lord, the consequences that will come from that. You might even look and see that chapters 36 through 39 are no longer prophecy, but now Isaiah gives the narrative. We have Assyria as this problem. It's about 701 B.C. They are invading Judah and have come up to the gates of Jerusalem. And now the details unfold in chapters 36 to 39 of what happened with that. So this is the final section of prophecy before that invasion. And so here is God coming in with a final declaration. Will you trust me and live or will you trust the world and die? As we read the 34th chapter, I want you just really to listen to the imagery. The imagery is vivid. It is uh, amazingly intense, the things that are described in it. So uh, feel the imagery and feel the power of what Isaiah prophesies. We'll read the 34th chapter and we'll talk about that side and then we'll see the other side of the coin in chapter 35. Isaiah chapter 34. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall, as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. The land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it. And the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles. There is no one there to call it a kingdom. And all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be a haunt of jackals, an abode for ostriches. 
And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in the shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate, for the mouth of the Lord has commanded, and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast his lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation they shall dwell in it. Pretty graphic little chapter there, isn't it? To pretty intense imagery of judgment. Chapter 34 is a call. You need to fear God and do not fear the world. You need to put your trust in God and not trust in the world. And you see this graphic imagery of the Lord is enraged against the nations. Verse 3, the slain will be cast out and the great slaughter. They're devoted to destruction. The stench is going to rise up. The host of heaven is going to roll away. God's sword is drinking its filth. But did you notice the object of God's wrath in there? Because that is important to the picture. Throughout the book of Isaiah, we have observed that the problem has been Assyria. Assyria is the opponent. Assyria is the one who is destroying Judah. Assyria is the one who's already taken the northern nation of Israel. It is Assyria who has surrounded Jerusalem. It is Assyria that has taken all of the fortified cities. And yet notice who is the object of God's wrath there as he describes it in verse 5. He says, the sword falls on Edom. And you read that and go, now that's a little bit out of place. (laughs) That hasn't been the issue for the whole book. That hasn't been what we've been looking at in the slightest. Edom now is described. However, it is important to recognize that Edom stands as a powerful image as those who are the enemies of of God, but more importantly, the enemies of God's people. And that's not hard to grasp because that is the historical truth from Jacob and Esau to Israel and Edom. Edom has always been a thorn in the side of Israel. Edom has always been an enemy from the very beginning, the conflict between Jacob and Esau to early on in the book of Numbers when Edom will not allow Israel to pass through the land. This is the conflict. I I wanted to put up here a couple of quotes from Homer Haley because I thought he just summarized it so well. I didn't think I could say it any better. Notice this first quote. He says, He says, Esau symbolizes the impious mind giving vent to its earthly character and its hatred of God, his people, and everything which is spiritual. Isaiah is picturing the day of Jehovah's vengeance against all that Edom represents. And that is a good summary of the idea. Here is Isaiah picturing God's vengeance against all that Edom represents. Anyone who is an enemy against God. 
God, against his people, anything that is a threat against him. In fact, he wrote in his other little book, and it was really a good book, uh, the Edomites book, he says, also, it was more than the expression of one nation or people. In Edom was expressed the contempt of this world of God and his righteousness. Edom symbolized the world and all the nations of which it was composed. And that just is exactly what is going on. The reason why Isaiah suddenly downshifts and seems to talk about Edom is because he is describing the judgment of all of God's enemies. And think of the hope of this declaration. Anyone who is an enemy of God's people is devoted to destruction. And notice you see that in two spots. Verse 1 and verse 2 lay that out because notice how it begins. Who is the Lord enraged against? doesn't say Edom, but the nations. Edom represents all the peoples and all the nations that stand against the people of God. And then you see verse 8 really drives it. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for whom? cause of Zion, the people of God. God now is going to act on behalf of his people. He will act against any enemy against the that stands against the people of God. At the moment, it's Assyria, but it stands as an image against any who would stand against God and his people. In fact, notice the imagery that you will recognize from verses 9 and 10, where he says in verse 9, the streams of Edom will be turned into pitch, her soil into sulfur, her land shall become burning pitch. Does that remind you of something, of burning and sulfur? You get a Sodom and Gomorrah imagery, enemies of God, they will fall. Verse 10 should also ring a bell. Night and day it shall not be quenched, its smoke goes up forever and ever. Which sounds a lot like what Jesus himself would even describe as he spoke of Gehenna, of a a burning fire that would not ever be quenched. And so you have this language and imagery that here even Isaiah uses to describe anything, anyone who stands against God and his people, that judgment will come. And it is with vivid imagery that God says, I hold the sword against them and my sword will be filled with their blood. God will protect his people. Now, there's one historical piece that we need to add to this that I think rounds out what we're going to observe when we come into chapter 35 that is really important. When we go and look back at the history of the relationship between Israel and Edom, it is a fascinating relationship because you will remember Israel constantly has problems except under the reign of one king. You remember that Saul goes and tries to attack Edom and is unsuccessful in doing so. However, when David comes along, David goes to war against Edom and he is the only king to be able to conquer Edom and maintain its subjugation. When his son Solomon takes the throne, he loses the subjugation of Edom, and Edom now becomes a threat and a pain again. There is only one of the kings that was able to put down Edom, and only one of those kings was able to maintain that subjugation. 
David is the only one to do that. Hold that in your mind because that will come out to chapter 35 of what God's able to accomplish. That there is only one king who is able to put down the enemies of God. And so David represents that during that time. Now we come into chapter 35 and you're going to see a massive shift. 34 describes doom and judgment to the enemies of God. Chapter 35 now is basically put your hope in God because look at what God is going to accomplish if you will trust him rather than trust in the world. Let's start with the first two verses of Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord. The majesty of our God. These first two verses describe a picture of renewal, a picture of new life. He says that the wilderness and the dry land, they are going to blossom. You get this picture of life in the wilderness, of plantings and flowers and all of this blooming in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of a desert, in the middle of a dry land. Why is that going to happen? Why is there going to be new life? Why is there going to be renewal? Why is there going to be blessings that are going to come? Verse 2 is very powerful. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. You're going to see something that is going to change everything, Isaiah prophesies. You are going to see something that is going to change. The Lord is coming and you are going to see him. You are going to see his glory. And when he arrives, a radical change is going to happen. That which looks like a desert and dry land that is barren and parched is now going to blossom. Now there's going to be a reversal. Now there's going to be a restoration and a pouring out of God's blessings upon the people, which leads to this interesting instruction in verse three. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And so now you see there is a hope. Here is the call to the people. God is going to come. You are going to see his glory. It is going to bring blessing and reversal. Therefore, here is the command to you. Strengthen your weak hands. Strengthen those feeble knees. It is a call to be strong, to be prepared, to be ready to endure. Now, what was to give them the hope that they should be strong in the face of their enemies in the face of suffering in the face of difficulty in the face of all that was coming against them with these enemies of God how could they be strong verse 4 lays it out your God will come with vengeance that's what we just read in 34 God is coming with a sword and he is going to deal with Edom. He is going to deal with the enemies. He is going to deal with those who strike down his people. He will fight for the cause of Zion is what God says. 
But notice the second part there in verse 4 as well. The reason to be strong and to strengthen those weak hands, to strengthen those means, is not only because God is going to come and deliver recompense against your enemies. Number two, he says, because God will come and save you. He says, I am coming and I will put down those enemies and I will come and save you. Now think about, that's quoted, if you recognize that, and perhaps your Bible indicates that. That is quoted over in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 12. There in verse 3, strengthen the weak hands and make firm feeble knees. That's exactly what we read over in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 12 uses this very quotation and he writes it to those Christians who are suffering at that time. You read the book of Hebrews and hear about their persecution and suffering and difficulty. And he is writing to them and he's saying, you have strength from hearing this salvation oracle that Isaiah has proclaimed in the face of difficulty, in the face of hostility, in the face of suffering, that God allows these things that the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 11, which yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That God allows these things, that these things happen for your strengthening, for your encouragement, that you be trained in holiness, though it is painful circumstances that we endure. And so the writer of Hebrews seems to almost have a commentary of what fits Isaiah. You are suffering at the hands of the enemies. They are coming against you. But here's your hope. Here's your strength. Here's why you can stand strong. God brings recompense to his enemies and any who stand against God's people and he will come and save you. And the writer of Hebrews draws upon that and says, that is a hope that you Christian have as well, is that God will come will save. And not only that, he will have recompense for the enemies and all of that. Its great purpose, Hebrews 12, verse 10, is that we might share in his holiness. It is a call for us to transform our lives and to be strong, even in the face of these difficulties. Now watch what's going to happen with this in verse 5. Verse 5 now describes the results of God coming. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Notice this picture is God is coming. He is going to save you and he will deal with the enemies. And notice how you're going to know those things are going to happen. He now gives this long list of here's what to look for. The blind are going to see the lame are going to walk. The mute are going to speak and water is going to flow in the desert. And it is a picture simply saying that God is going to come and he is going to bring life and he is going to bring blessings. And that will be exemplified by these very miracles. It is a neat image that he does because Isaiah is using these images to speak of God pouring out his blessings. You are struck down and suffering and ailing. 
And God is going to make the blind see and the lame walk and rivers and water flow through deserts. And it's going to be planting and there's going to be blossoms and flowers and all of this going on. And so you get this symbolic imagery of the blessings of God restoring into a parched people and into a dry land. But the great picture behind that is, isn't it interesting that when God came, those things actually happened? That it wasn't just metaphorical, hey, God's going to come and bring these great blessings to his people. He was actually going to do each and every one of those things. That's why when Jesus comes along and does those things, that was supposed to be the flare before their eyes that says, God has come to save. He's healing the lame. He's causing the blind to see. The mute are able to speak. What does this mean? God is with us. He is coming to bring recompense on the enemies and he has come to save his people. That should have been the number one thing that went into their mind every time Jesus performed one of those miracles. Is they would have said, God is here because that's what Isaiah said was going to happen. And when he comes, the blessings of God were going to pour out upon us. And it was going to be a restoration of life and blessing. In fact... Do you remember when John the baptizer is in prison? And he sends messengers to Jesus asking, are you really the one? And do you remember what Jesus' response to that is? He doesn't say, now let's go send an apostle and do a miracle before his eyes or something like that. He turns and says to him, go tell him the blind see." And the lame walk and the mute speak. What is he telling John? He's not just simply saying, oh, I can do miracles. Obviously, it's me. He's relating off of Isaiah's prophecies. Not only here, but we're going to see this later in Isaiah. This language is used again, directly quoted there in Luke chapter 7. That God has come to save. And I believe the imagery is thus. The new David king has come. And the David king destroys the enemies of the people of God. Go tell John that I am going to deal with the enemies. Though John sat in prison... And though John was suffering, and though John would lose his life for proclaiming Christ, the message to John is, I will deal with the enemies. I am the David who conquers the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. And that was what John was to put his hope in. That's what ended the conversation is that we will trust in Him who has come. And His miracles prove to us that He has come to conquer all that stand against God and His people. And therefore, that's what this message is. Strengthen weak hands, because God has come. And He comes with a vengeance against those who stand against Him.
Now look at verse 8. There's one more thing that happens in the desert. Verse 8. And a highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. He says, there's one more thing in that desert. Not only do we see the blooming and the blossoms that are there, not only are we picturing this welcome as God is going to come and bring new life and blessings, but he says there's going to be a highway there. The highway of holiness is going to be there in the desert. And notice how he describes this road. He says, there's not one unclean thing. That's walking on this highway. That's a pretty interesting highway. You can keep anything that is foul and unclean and condemned and defiled completely off of it. So you have this metaphorical road then. And he even gives the pictures, no fools are going to wander on it. But I think one of the greatest pictures there, when he says there, verse 9, no lion shall be there, no ravenous beast shall come upon that. Now we're, we're kind of immune to that idea. We drive in cars on freeways, and there's not lions on the freeway that you go, wow, I'm really concerned about my trip as I go. But then, that was a problem. You go on a long journey, you run into something along the way, you run into a wild animal. So what he's picturing is, on this road, there is no danger. On the highway of holiness, there is no unclean thing on it. There is nothing to fear on it. There is no danger on it. God is with you. God is protecting you. And who are the ones who can walk on that road? He uses two images, two great, glorious New Testament images. The redeemed are on this road. That's a picture of being bought back with the price. And he says the ransomed of the Lord return on this road. Two New Testament images, the redeemed and the ransomed. They are the ones who walk on this road. They have nothing to fear. They are the ones who are able to walk on the road and they come to Zion. Here is this great picture of his people being able to come to God. A road is going to be established And those who are redeemed and those who are ransomed of the Lord are able to return to the Lord and receive the blessings that we've read about in this chapter. One other aspect that I think is very important to see in verse 10. Notice their condition. Verse 10 says they come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sign shall flee away. Feel a whole Revelation 21 right there. Revelation 21 and 22 are bursting out of that. No more sign. No more tears, no more pain. What a great picture. Here is what's going to happen with my Lord's people. They are going to be rejoicing. They will be filled with joy. 
They are going to be people who are singing everlasting joy shall be on their heads. It's like a hat that they wear. They are perpetually with joy because of what God has done for them. And notice what they have obtained. They have obtained the thing that every single human being on earth wants. Every single human being seeks after. You see it there in 10? They've obtained gladness and joy. It's what everybody's looking for. It's what everybody runs after. It's what everybody's spinning their wheels to try to find. He says, those who are the ransomed and redeemed, they are put on the road of safety. God is protecting them. And they have everlasting joy, gladness, no more suffering. Now, the reason why I think that's so beautiful as well is because within it, there is no promise of physical protection. Because he spoke these things and used these ideas to John, who's about to die in prison. The metaphor is not serve the Lord and everything is going to be fine. You will have no suffering and no pain. You'll be a-okay. No problem will ever come. That's not it. The picture is, and think about the context of what's happening to the people at that time as they are enduring an attack as Assyria surrounds and the fortified nations are destroyed. God is with those who are truly His, even in the face of suffering and pain and difficulty and problems. God is with you. That's why the writer of Hebrews can use that text and say, strengthen weak hands, make firm feeble knees. God is with you, though you suffer, though God allows trials, though difficulties may come, God stands with you. I wanted to bring in John chapter 1 because I felt that the words there fit so well with this message that the hope is all built from chapter 35 and verse 2. All of this is going to happen because they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of God. That is the beginning point to which all of this flows. And remember how John begins his gospel. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, for from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. When you see Jesus, you have seen God and you've seen his glory. And when you've seen Jesus, then you know God destroys the enemies of his people. And God will deal with suffering and God will deal with injustice and God will deal with all of that.
and the righteous redeemed and those who walk on that road that are ransomed to the Lord, they are the ones that experience the blessings of God, the greatest blessing found there in verse 4 of Isaiah 35. He will come and save you. And so we started the lesson by asking the question, this is what Isaiah, I believe, is doing. Will you hope in the world or will you hope in God? When you hope in the world, he described in verse 34 what happens when we put our hope and trust and desire and efforts into the world. He says, the Lord says, for my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword and it is sated with blood. He says, I will bring wrath against those who put their hope in the world. But put your hope in God. Isaiah 35, verse 10, everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sigh shall flee away. In whom will you trust? Isaiah's final words, as Assyria now surrounds Jerusalem, will you trust in God to save you? Or will you trust in yourself and think you can deliver yourself? Put your hope in God and he will save you. You pull your song books out. We're singing invitation song and we invite you to come to Jesus and our hope is in him. And we call upon you to walk on the highway of holiness with joy and gladness, walking to the eternal father who has reconciled us through the blood of Jesus Christ. You can be redeemed. You can be ransomed. You can be a child of God bought back from sin, redeemed from the evil of our ways that we have committed against him and be put in a great place as adopted children belonging to Him with all the rights and privileges and blessings that He pictures here in Isaiah. Why would we put our hope in this world? This hope in the world leads us to destruction, to emptiness, and to void. Put your hope in God, and He will save you. Won't you come now while we stand and while we sing?